be in Isaiah 59 if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah 59. I was thinking, as Les shared, uh, tomorrow night, meeting here in the barn to pray for, specifically for lost people. And, uh, you know, among believers that can be a, a kind of common phrase. Among non-believers that can be almost an offensive phrase. What do you mean I'm lost? I know exactly where I am. Right here. <laughs> Which I've said many times when I was driving with my wife, you know. Do you know where you are? Yes, right here. Here I know. It's out there I'm not so sure about. But in thinking about people in the condition of being lost, as many of us, as all of us, at one point, at one time, were lost people, there's a certain stubbornness in lostness. You know, there's a certain degree of pride that says, I don't want to admit that I'm lost. I don't want to admit that I'm not clearly in control of my life or in charge of my direction. And that same stubbornness, I think one of the reasons why God chose the people of Israel to be the people through whom He would interact and work as an example to the whole rest of the world is because, boy, if anyone is stubborn, they are. And I've said that before, and I mean it with the the utmost respect because part of that stubbornness is what's kept them as a people. Part of that stubbornness is the refusal to cave in. And so it can have a good aspect to it. But there is definitely a stubbornness there. And God has been trying to get the attention of Israel, going back at least 4,000 years, trying to grab their attention and pull them into relationship from the very first relationship with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and then right on down the line to to the sons of Jacob that became the tribes. And I want to remind you tonight as we begin, that as we head into the final stretch here, of the scroll of Isaiah, as we go up, as it were, as we've been talking about the last week or so, going up Mount Zion, approaching that glorious kingdom come, as Isaiah spends much of his focus on these last several chapters, looking at the kingdom, I remind you that the promise of the kingdom was first and foremost a promise to Israel. And the reason why I believe that there is a literal fulfillment a literal thousand year reign on earth, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem, is because God promised it to Israel. And if He doesn't fulfill an earthly reign from Jerusalem, then He has not kept that promise. And you can't avoid it if you truly just read through the the Hebrew prophets. It is a very clear and definite promise He makes. I am going to come. I am going, Messiah is going to rebuild the temple. Messiah is going to step foot in the temple. He is going to rule and reign from the temple. It's absolutely clear that God made this promise. And if He doesn't keep it, if it's vague, if it's metaphorical, if it's just an allegory, then He's really kind of playing with us. And I don't know about you, but I've learned throughout my life, God doesn't play games with me. He is not a trickster. He made a promise to Israel. We have to recognize the promises, especially of these next four chapters, Isaiah 59, 60, 61, and 62. Especially these chapters are to Israel. God is speaking to the Jewish people and for His people. And to attribute this promise to the church distorts the Word of God. Many churches take these next several chapters and apply them to the church. Saying, as we've talked about in replacement theology, that Israel is cast out, these promises are for the church. They can have the curses, we'll take the promises. 
That's not how it works. And it distorts the intended Word of God if we try to make it say something other than what He made it say. He spoke these words, these four chapters, this whole book. But these four chapters He spoke through Isaiah to the people of Israel. And we need to recognize that as the background for everything that we're going to learn here. Yes, we are drawn in. Yes, we are wonderfully fantastically included as part of Jesus' righteous government when that kingdom comes. Revelation 1, verse 6. Revelation 5, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 6. All very clearly state that we will rule and reign with Him. But the promise of the kingdom was to Israel first. And the fulfillment of the kingdom is the fulfillment of the promise to them. So remember that while we study these chapters. We don't co-opt them away from the intended audience, the Jewish people. Now Isaiah 59 60, 61, and 62 are the prophet's response to what we studied last Sunday, Sunday morning, in Isaiah 58. And I want to go back and just look at that for a moment. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Remember what happens, what God said. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, like the shofar. And declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. The religion of the people had become a virtual reality of superficiality. A role-playing game. They were doing all the right things, they were adding all the right behaviors, but the heart wasn't there. As verse 2 tells us, Yet they seek me day by day, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. All those are good things. But the problem is, and the reason why they're being called to the carpet for their sin, is because all those good things are a farce. They're just behavioral, they're mental ascent, but there's no heart involved in them. Which is why in verse 3, the people themselves say, Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? So Isaiah 59 picks up from here, it is Isaiah's full-throated response to the seedy underbelly of Israel, which is simply role-playing religious gaming. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 59, this prophet shouts out, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Remember what God told Moses to tell the people? In that great prayer, he said, let my countenance shine upon you. But now his countenance is no longer shining upon you. He's no longer shining and looking at Israel. Why? Because of their sin. Now I'm going to give you seven words that will outline this chapter for us as we go through. And the first word is separation. Separation. What Isaiah blurts out as a resounding shofar is immediately, sin separates. Why is God not noticing your fasting? Why does He not see your humility? Why does he seem not to be taking notice? It's not because he has separated himself from you, but you have separated yourself from him. That's the heart of the issue. Sin separates. We've got to get that. Sin separates. In verse 1, Isaiah is saying, you know what? God is not an old man sitting in a rocking chair, deep to a sinner's prayer. 
We don't hear the voice coming out of the heavens, Hey, what's that? What you talking about? That's not the Lord. His hand isn't stubby and unable to reach out, grab hold, and save. He hears everything. His hands are mighty to save. That's not the issue. Now I want you to think for me, with me for a moment here because I, I've been kind of revisiting and rethinking my stance on sin and, and the Lord. On the separation that sin brings about. I recognize, 1 John 1.5, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. I get that. God is absolute perfection. And I used to kind of flippantly say that God just cannot abide sin. That's why there's a separation. God cannot abide sin. And in fact, John says in 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Those are strong words. Sometimes I sin. Do I not know the Lord? (laughs) Not in the moment of my sin. Do I not see him? Not when I'm busy sinning. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Therefore, separation, right? But think about Israel. And let's ask the question, what exactly does sin separate a person from? And here's why I'm asking this. Sin does not separate us from God's presence. Wait, Rick, God is light. In Him there's no darkness. He can't abide sin. No, sin does not separate from God's presence. Let me ask this question. Was God present in Israel even when they sinned? Yes. He was still right there. So obviously, though He Himself is perfect light, He can abide that. He can deal with man's sin. That's important to understand. That's why Israel needed continual sacrifice because God was there and they kept sinning. And God kept saying, you got to get clean. You need purification. So sin does not separate from God's presence. He, he didn't run off at the slip of a bad word. You know, in the tent of one of the Israelites, God didn't hear and go, oh, got to get out of here, can't abide sin. Where's God? He's in the hills because you said a bad word. He didn't disappear. He didn't rush off. He was patient He didn't exit stage left at every adulterous thought of every man in Israel. If he had, he wouldn't have lived in the midst of Israel at all. If that was the case, God would have been on the move 24-7. But he wasn't. He was in the midst of Israel. And let me push it a little further here. Even Satan can gain an audience before God. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, look it up. So, it's not sin, it's not that sin separates from God's presence because God is, well, He's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. He can be everywhere at once. So clearly, sin doesn't separate from His presence. He's not limited by our sin. Secondly, sin does not separate from God's love. And Paul's very clear about that. He doesn't stop loving every time a person sins. If he did, we'd be in trouble. Now, John tells us, 1 John 4, 8, God is love, but Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if sin separated me from God's love, I could not ever be saved. While I was a sinner, Christ died. In the act... 
In the process of sinful living and sinful thinking and sinful behavior, Jesus at that point died, not after we were cleaned up, but in our sin. So sin does not separate from God's love. If He showed us His love while we were sinners, sin can't separate from His love. His love is still there. His love is still flowing. His love is still going. And if He didn't love the sinner, nobody would have a prayer. Literally. How could you even talk to Him? How could you even come to Him and ask for forgiveness and repent and seek to be saved if He doesn't love the sinner? But He does love the sinner. And that's something we need to realize in the church. God loves all people. The only distinction between the church and the non-believer is the belief. Now, I will add to that salvation by belief. But God loves all people and desires all people to be saved. It's that universal invitation we talked about last week. Not salvation, but invitation. So sin does not separate from God's presence. Sin does not separate from God's love. So what does sin separate from? When he says, you have separated, you have made a separation between you and your God. What is that separation? A couple things to note. Number one, sin separates from fellowship with God. Doesn't mean he's not present. Doesn't mean he's not aware. Doesn't mean he's counted you out. But sin separates us from fellowship with him. As we talked about on Sunday, God simply wants to keep it real. He wants to be in fellowship with you and with me. He wants genuine, authentic relationships. But for the rebellious heart, that kind of real relationship is just too exposing. You know people who are superficial because they don't want you to really know them because they're afraid if you know them... (laughs) You won't like them very much. So they keep you at arm's length. I have done that. I've done, and so we, we probably all do that with some people. Keep them kind of in a distance until we really know that we can trust them. And then we expose a little more of ourselves. Hey, a relationship with God is the most exposing thing you can do. It's all out there. He knows it all. And so the rebellious heart foolishly thinks, I'll just keep God at arm's distance. I just won't be in fellowship with Him. And that way, I keep myself safe. 90% of the time, when I notice that someone has been out of fellowship with church, not showing up on a Sunday or a Wednesday for a month or two or three, usually you know a little more than that, 90% of the time I know there's a sin issue going on. And I don't know that judgmentally. It's just every time I've seen someone disappear for six or eight months and then come back, they always come back with a heart of repentance because they've been living a life that is not compatible with fellowship with God. See how that works? When I am living a sin life, when I'm focused on my sin, I can't be in fellowship with God because I'm exposed. And so sin does that. It separates us out of fellowship. Israel's or, or Isaiah's life uh, ended at the time that Manasseh's life, uh, was, was reigning as king. Manasseh reigned. His, his son Ammon wasn't any better than he was. They were both very evil kings. And then Josiah comes along. And I want you to think about what happened there. Evil reign, evil kings. And when Josiah came along, you know what the first thing King Josiah did? Actually, he'd been a king about 10 years, so he was 18, but the first actual move he made to get the people back in alignment with with God, you know what it was? Restored worship in the temple. Yes, restored worship in the temple. But to do that, he had to restore the temple. The temple was in ruins. Solomon's temple. This is before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the first temple. The first temple, Solomon's glorious temple, was in shambles. They had to go and repair the doors. They had to repair the pillars. They had to go through the temple and clean it up and clean it out. And while they were repairing the temple, 
that had been neglected by the people of Israel, guess what they found? The Word of God. What does that tell you? It tells you during the reign of Manasseh and Ammon, two generations, the people were not in the Word. They were not hearing the Word of God. They had no sense of the Word of God. They were so out of fellowship, they hadn't heard the Word for two generations. And John says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. When? When we're walking in the light of fellowship. In fellowship with God, sin tends to flee. Out of fellowship with God, sin encroaches and comes in. It pushes it away. My sin separates me from fellowship with the Lord. And we see that with Israel. Sin also separates from the blessings of God. He's still present. He still loves. He still desires His people to come to Him. But sin separates from His blessings. The rebellious heart, and here's why, the rebellious heart rejects any kind of reliance on God. I don't need to trust Him. I'll take care of myself. I'm just fine, thank you. I don't need no crutch. And ironically, the prodigal son in Jesus' very Jewish parable, Luke 15, was living off of his father's generosity until he ran out of his inheritance. And it was only then that he lacked the blessings and the benefits of living in his father's house. That's when he realized he needed to go home. He didn't have the blessings anymore. The blessings tend to not be given. And it's it's sad because in talking about people in a lost state... Or people in a rebellious state. Isn't it interesting how often people just say, Why? Why? God, you got to help me with this. God, you got to bless me with this. And it doesn't happen. Because sin separates us from the blessings of God. Sin separates us from the protection of God. Because the transgressor, the sinner, doesn't want anything to do with God. Why would you expect God to protect you when you don't want Him around? When you do not want to be near Him, like the children of Israel walking out from under the cover of the cloud as they went through the wilderness. Get out from under the protection of God. Why are you shocked when you are unprotected? It's sadly ironic. When, when things go bad, people blame God, but they have made the separation. Why doesn't God hear us? As Israel said in the previous chapter, why doesn't He notice our humble fasts? And John says this, and listen to these words carefully. 1 John 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Okay, I am born of God. I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Do I still sin? Yeah. But I can promise you this. I don't practice sin. I don't want to get better at it. You know? Like a child practicing the piano. Or a kid practicing sports. No, we don't practice sin. Because his seed, God's seed, abides in the person who's born of God. So he cannot sin because he's born of God. And by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. So it's all about what you practice. Are you practicing righteousness or are you practicing sin? Which one is it? 
And we make the choice. And whichever choice we make will determine whether we're near to God or separated from Him. It's our own choice. It's our own behavior. Isaiah says, You have made a separation. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Practicing righteousness, my friends, is not role-playing. Because the practice of righteousness flows out of this desire to be with Him. I want to be with Him. Therefore, I want to do things that please Him. Therefore, I'm going to practice righteous things because I know it makes Him happy and He wants to be around that. And my heart's desire is to be where He is. But watch how quickly things spiral out of control where there is a separation. When the people sin, make a separation from God. Verse 3 goes on and says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Isaiah said as much at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 15, he said, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Why not? Because your hands are covered with blood. Israel, your hands are covered with blood. Number two in your notes, not only is there separation, there's corruption. Corruption. And there's no nicer, easy way to say this, but corruption is at the heart of the pro-abortion camp in the world. Corruption. How can you make such a judgment? It's easy. Listen, to choose abortion is by nature to say, my immediate life is more important than life continuing. And that's a corrupt view. It's always more important for the Lord to see life go on, life continue. I've told you before, the Jewish mindset says if you kill one man, you kill a generation. Because those that would have been born of that one man are no longer going to be born. So you, in essence, have not just murdered one, you've murdered an entire generation of people who would have come from that man's seed. I wish we understood that with this whole abortion thing. We wouldn't, I mean, the fact that it's even a debate is shocking. We have blood on our hands. Maybe not us, but our country certainly does. And think about this. The more we separate ourselves from the life giver, the more life itself loses value. Separation leads to corruption because we're already pulling back from the one who created us. So why should we care about that which is created, created life? And so we become corrupt. Isaiah explicitly reveals now, and this is interesting language, the spread of corruption. He uses one of the more vivid descriptions in the Bible. Continuing on in verse 3, he says, Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. And no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. He gives two very vivid descriptions here. Adder's eggs and spider webs. And he says these are a picture of exactly what's going on, of the corruption that's going on in Israel. And they're a great description. Start off with the first one, adder's eggs. I think I would change that. You might make a note in your Bibles and write viper there. Or poisonous snake would be fine. Because it can't be an adder. Uh, adder doesn't work. The adder is one of the few reptiles in the reptile world that does not lay eggs. So that's a misunderstanding by the translators. The word in Hebrew is sepa, a sepa's eggs. That same word is used in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 8, and there it's translated viper. Is it actually a viper? It's, it's some kind of poisonous snake that would have been indigenous to the Middle East in the days of Isaiah. A sepa. 
this poisonous serpent. So what do viper's eggs describe? What are viper's eggs here a picture of? Very clearly, false teaching. False teaching are like viper's eggs. In fact, you could say false teachers are snake oil salesmen. They're coming along trying to get you to buy into something that is not true. I just picked up, right before I left, I picked up the recent Israel My Glory magazine, and it's talking about in the in this issue, false teaching in the church. And it, and it raises and names Brian McLaren, who is at the very front of the, uh, the emergent church movement. Rob Bell is another one, and there are other guys who are out there. And what they're doing, and, and he is named, Brian McLaren is named, uh, what was the matter, by uh, NPR, as one of the most influential pastors in America. And he's one who's standing out front saying, we need a new paradigm. He's saying, we need to reimagine the gospel for this generation. We need to rethink it and restate it. We need a, a fresh approach, not the old school approach you know, of sin and judgment and the cross and all that. We need a new, a new story. Really? Okay, I like the old story because the old story is truth. And I love what John Corson says about this. If it's new, it isn't true. Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, forever. He's the same. He is unchanging. We don't need a new story. We just need to go back to the same story, the right story, the truth. But false teachers come along. They do two things. They spread teaching that either kills people, it withers the spirit, It causes the heart to die. Or worse, they produce more false teaching. Think about this. Viper's eggs. You eat a viper's egg, you eat a poisonous snake egg, it could kill you. Or they hatch into more snakes. Imagine, if you will, hundreds of little vipers just pouring out all over the place. You ever have those snake dreams? Well, I used to hate those as a kid, you know, where you just dream that nowhere you couldn't step in. You're like the scene in Indiana Jones, the first one, when they're down in the pit and the snakes are everywhere. Imagine that. And that's what false teaching does. It either causes death or it causes a spread of false teaching to continue to go out, as we see happening in our seminaries today. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says, We are not like many peddling the Word of God. See, that's reimagining. That's trying to reinvent what the truth really is. We're not like that. We don't peddle the Word. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So false teaching. Viper's eggs are false teachers producing poison and more poison. Compare that, by the way, to the ministry, to the teaching of Jesus. The false teacher brings snakes. What did Jesus say? Luke 11, verse 11. Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And I point that verse out because where there is false teaching, it's viper's eggs. But where there is the truth of the Word of God, guess what happens? His Spirit is present and His Spirit is given. Where the truth is being spoken, God's Holy Spirit spreads out and moves in the hearts of the people. Where there's false teaching, it's snakes and scorpions. 
So false teachers. He also says that they not only hatch spiders or, or vipers' eggs, but they weave the spider's web. The spider's web. What is the spider's web? Well, Ironside says this. The spider's web is beautiful, but it's just foam. It proceeds from the spider itself, and many preachers, like spiders, spin webs out of their own heads instead of bringing teachings from the Word of God. What does the spider's web describe, gang? And it follows right after false teaching, and that is flimsy work. Or flimsy works. False teaching followed by flimsy works. Look at verse 6. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. False teaching always insists on works-based salvation. One of the ways you can know that a teacher is a false teacher is if he's saying, if you don't do this, you will go to hell. Or if you don't do it this way, you will die. Or you, you must keep these prescribed rules in order to be saved. That is, that's the height of, of false teaching right there, of cults. Cults are always very works-oriented. Because the more you get people doing works, the more they feel guilty if they're not working. And Isaiah says it's spider webs. It's like trying to dress yourself with spider webs. It's flimsy. It's a poor choice for thread for clothing. Okay, for one thing, it doesn't hold up. And even if it did, spiders' webs are transparent. You see right through them. Now that might work for Lady Gaga, but not for a follower of Jesus Christ. Spider web clothing. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. There are our works right there. They're filthy, they're flimsy, they don't hold up, they're see-through, they don't work. If you're looking for good thread to weave a garment, spider's webs are a bad idea. Spider thread is a bad kind of thread. However, there is a creature that gives us a very strong and beautiful thread, and that's the silkworm. The silkworm. Silk. I mean, it's where, it's where we get silk from, as opposed to the spider. The silk from a silkworm is strong, it's fibrous, and it can be woven into soft and beautiful and shimmering and strong clothing. But the silkworm has to die to give up that thread, to, give, to produce that silk. Jesus said in Psalm 22, verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. See the contrast? False teaching and flimsy works cannot cover over the corruption of sin. However, Jesus' finished work on the cross is stronger than silk, able to save, able to bring about in us, to generate in us the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19 talks about it. That's, That's our clothing. Fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteous acts of the saints. Oh, so the saints do righteous works? Of course we do. But that's not how we get saved. We do righteous works because of Jesus working in us and through us. We are clothed with His righteousness. Amen? In fact, Isaiah says as much in the next chapter, Isaiah 61, verse 10, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. But Isaiah says, Israel, you are sucking on vipers' eggs and you're trying to dress yourselves in spiders' webs. False teaching and false works, and it doesn't work at all. Verse 7, going on. Their feet run to evil, 
and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. Now, why, why does someone build a highway? To make it easy to traverse a land, right? To make travel easier. But their highways are death and destruction and devastation. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. And whoever treads on them does not know peace. What are we talking about here? Perversion. Third thing in your notes, perversion. He says, therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. Isaiah, by the way, is identifying here with his people. He says, we hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. It's a perversion of all that's good. We want light, but we can't see. It's gloomy here. Good things. Good things like peace, justice, righteousness, hope, brightness, all described in these few verses. These good things get perverted by sin. The sin that separates, the sin that corrupts, ultimately starts to pervert things. And note this, the Apostle Paul quotes verse 7 and verse 8. Right here, he quotes it in Romans chapter 3, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. In fact, you'll hear several things in this chapter. Paul was obviously reading through Isaiah when he wrote the book of Romans. Because there are many quotes out of Isaiah that come up in that book. How many good things in this life are perverted by sin? (laughs) Everything, Kathy says. So many good things that God has created. Les and I were talking, I share with you this this whole new diet thing, and I'm not going to try and convince anyone of this. But Cheryl and I are simply trying to figure out a way to get back to whole foods and healthy foods and good foods. And you can't shop at Safeway and do it. And you can't shop at Costco for the most part and do it. Because there is so much in terms of preservatives and antibiotics and other things that are in our food, that are in the average daily food of an American. Someone who goes to Safeway and says, you know, I'm just going to buy healthy. You can't. Because our food is so messed up. Because the governmental requirements on our food to be safe to eat make our food unsafe to eat. And it's, it's amazing the more you look at this stuff. I kind of wish I'd never started because Pop-Tarts are history. <laughs> All this stuff, the preservatives that are, that are just killing us. I know we're not slated. Our body's not meant to live forever, you know, until Jesus regenerates and glorifies us. I get that. But there's so much unhealthiness. Beyond that, think of all the good things that God gave this world that are absolutely destroyed and perverted. Sex is right at the top of the list. What a beautiful, fantastic, wonderful, glorious, exciting thing for a man and woman to share in marriage and in the sanctity and security of that. And what has our world done to it? Perverted it. Twisted it. Even to the point that Christian marriages struggle with sex within the marriage because how are we supposed to do this thing that is so gross and disgusting and ugly in the world? It's been perverted. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, the path of peace they have not known. And yet God's people still think their troubles are God's fault. When God creates beautiful things, sets them out before us and says, here you go, and we take it and we twist it all up and we go, why is it so weird, God? Why is it so ugly? Why is it so shameful? Well, it wasn't when I created it. It wasn't when I handed it to you. I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 17, 17, He said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. 
Not just that they were faithless, they were perverted. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus wasn't name-calling. He wasn't looking at His apostles, which, by the way, He was talking to in that moment. He wasn't looking at the apostles and going, you guys are a bunch of perverts. The word perverted is, in the Greek, literally twisted. Unbelieving and twisted generation. Jesus was pointing out how twisted the generation truly was, and that was 2,000 years ago, and we have not progressed. We have not evolved into a less twisted people. All of this twistedness of God's good gifts to man leads to yet another sin problem following perversion. Number four, confusion. Confusion. Look at verse 10. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Now, Isaiah is describing this sense of confusion, darkness, and and trying to find their way, but they just can't. And he mentions, interestingly, he says, we growl like bears and we moan sadly like doves. And I wonder if, as he wrote this, Isaiah was recalling the time Hezekiah learned that he was about to die. Mighty, righteous, good King Hezekiah. Isaiah goes to him and says, get your house in order because the Lord has determined you're about to die. And what did Hezekiah do? Well, in Hezekiah's own words, Isaiah 38.14, he wrote, like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. And it's we're not talking about... I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. As great a king as Hezekiah was, he confessed that in the moment he faced death, he sounded pathetic. And by the way, it's a great way to test where your heart is with Jesus. Like we talked about on Sunday, ask yourself, at any given point, stop and ask yourself, if Jesus showed up right now, or if I were to die right now, would I be okay with that? If your answer is, no, I don't think so, maybe you need to reevaluate your walk with the Lord. I mean, granted, there are always things that we would like to do, but wouldn't you rather do them in heaven? (laughs) I mean, isn't there a more glorious promise awaiting us there? And if our hearts are right with Jesus and we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, the possibility of dying or being called up immediately is a great, exciting blessing. And it's a good test of where my heart is at. Hezekiah's heart was not ready to go. He freaked out. And he began to moan like a dove. You know the dove noise. I've done it for you before. I'll do it again because I'm very familiar with it. That's what they do. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like whining. My life is so tough. You know? It's the sound of a whiner. What about a bear growl? Oh, man! It's the voice of a complainer. Someone complaining growls like a bear. Someone whining moans like a dove. And that's what Isaiah describes. He says that's what we've become. We're a bunch of whiners and complainers here in Israel. And either way, whether you're complaining or whining, if you're doing either one, you're just plain confused. And so confusion is a result of their sin. Now Isaiah cuts to the chase. 
And like the prophet Daniel, the prophet Isaiah confesses his people's, number five, rebellion. He confesses their rebellion. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. And our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart, lying words, that's powerful. We're birthing deceit right in our own hearts, he says. Verse 14, he says, justice is turning back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. Wow, truth is lacking. Truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Back in verse 12, Isaiah, in confessing this rebellion, covers the entire full range of rebellion. And we've seen this before, but notice he uses three words there. Three words in verse 12. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. They are three separate words in the Hebrew. I want you to note this. We've talked about it before, but we've got to understand this. Sin is the Hebrew word kata'ah. Kata'ah means recognize wrongdoing. That is, sin is you know what you're doing. You see it, you know it's wrong, you recognize it as wrong, but you do it anyway. Okay? That's kata'ah. Transgression is the Hebrew word pasha. And pasha is rebellious wrongdoing. Okay? Recognize wrongdoing, you know what it is. Rebellious wrongdoing, I'm going to do it. It's my thing to do. Recognized wrongdoing is kata'ah. Rebellious wrongdoing, pasha. And then you get to iniquity, and it's the Hebrew word avon. And avon means raw depravity. That's someone who is in the point, they just can't help themselves. They don't know if it's right or wrong or in between, it doesn't matter. They just can't help themselves. They're just completely depraved. They're just going to sin. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Kata'ah, pasha, avon. Recognize wrongdoing, rebellious wrongdoing, and raw depravity. And Isaiah says, that's us. That's one area where I completely 100% agree with John Calvin. Total depravity. He was right about that. Man is totally depraved. In all aspects of it. When we know we're sinning, when we don't know we're sinning, and just doing it because we're depraved. Now check this out. In the psalm, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, we're told the following. How blessed is he whose transgression, pasha, is forgiven. Whose sin, kata'ah, is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute avon, iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. What a blessing it is, David writes, to have sin, transgression, and iniquity all washed away, all cleansed from us. Guess what? Jesus does it. He doesn't just take away your recognized wrongdoing, your rebellious wrongdoing, even your raw depravity. He takes all of it. There is no aspect of sin, transgression, or iniquity that Jesus doesn't wash away completely. In Him we are cleared on all accounts. But here's the thing you got to know about this rebellion. It's chosen. Rebellion is a chosen thing. It's not something that we can claim ignorance of. Oh, well, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know. I, I just I didn't know, Lord. Rebellion is chosen. You know you're rebelling. You know the Father has said, don't do it, but you're going to do it anyway. You've chosen to. 
We know when we're rebelling with one frightening exception. There is one exception to this. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's the person who doesn't even know they're sinning because their conscience has been completely seared. There's no sense of morality anymore. It's just gone. And what's frightening about that to me is Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is talking about someone who knew faith and left it. Note that. The Spirit explicitly says in latter times some will fall away from the faith. That's Fall away from the faith, that's apostasy. The word apostasy. I'm falling away. And Paul says it's going to happen. And those who fall away from faith, gang, their conscience gets seared. That is, to know Jesus and to reject Him is to put your own conscience on the skillet and fry your sense of morality. If you actually could do that, to love and know Jesus personally and then walk away from Him. It's a conscience-searing behavior. And more and more we see this in our world. People who know what's right, or they used to know what was right and true and good, but they can't even see it anymore. Life choices that have been made that now, when you try to talk to someone about what you know they used to know, they no longer can even see that as a bad thing. There's no sense of morality. And those who do recognize they've fallen away, they've fallen into an apostate position, and they want to come back, it is very hard to come back because they know by coming back, they know by coming back that they're going to have to deal with persecution. Where do you get that? Did you catch it in verse 15? He says, yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Why? Because Satan had a hold of you. And when you turn aside from evil, you think he's just going to let you go? You think he's going to make it easy for you? Absolutely not. You make yourself a prey. And so some people just say, nah, you know, I'm not going to get back involved in the church thing. I'm not going to follow Jesus. I... I make myself a prey. I don't, I don't want the flack that comes with that. All my friends now, they won't understand. So I just don't worry about me. You know what Jesus said? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10 There's a blessing in persecution. If you're talking to someone and they have been a believer or a follower of Jesus and they're waffling and they'd like to come back but they're just not sure how it's going to shake out, remind them of that. People around you may not understand, but if they don't, hey, you're even more blessed because you're following after Jesus. By the way, speaking of the blessing of persecution, I mentioned last Wednesday that a couple in Arizona were being, uh, the, the, a pastor was facing jail time for having a home Bible study. This week, a couple in San Juan Capistrano, California, 10 minutes from where I grew up, is, is facing a fine of $500 for having a home Bible study. It just happened again. I, I saw that and I went, what? One time might be a fluke. Twice you're starting to wonder, is there a pattern going on here? Is there something more to this? They face a $500 fine if they don't stop immediately holding home Bible studies. Bible studies in their home. We're not talking about church. They're not a church. They're not a group trying to be a church. They're not incorporated as a church. They're just a group of people saying, hey, we'd like to meet together with whoever wants to come over and study the Word of God. 
and they're being told you can't do that, $500 fine, and stop what you're doing. I don't want to alarm anyone, but we're living in a post-Christian America. We're living in a country that no longer recognizes the value, a country whose conscience is being seared and does not recognize the value of good things and right things and truth. Freedom of religion is going out the door. Freedom of assembly is going out the door. Freedom of a people simply to follow their God. The dark cavern before the mountain is coming more clearly into view, isn't it? What we talked about last week. That dark cavern, that tribulation. And by the way, that's number six in your notes. Isaiah caught a glimpse of tribulation. Verse 15 going on. The Lord saw, and it was displeasing in His sight that there was no justice. And He saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And we're talking about tribulation, where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. He will do that. And we are right around the corner from that. But I want you to notice three things about the Lord right here in this section. Number one, notice how He's dressed. Verse 17. He put on a righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped Himself with zeal as a mantle. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 9? What we're told? We're told that... uh, There will be no end, chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And now Isaiah sees God putting on the zeal. He is ready to go. He is going to cleanse the world of its sin by pouring out his wrath on this Christ-rejecting earth. Notice how he's dressed. Righteousness like a breastplate. A helmet of salvation on his head. Sound familiar? Ephesians chapter 6. I know you're familiar with this. Probably the most quoted passage in Scripture related to spiritual warfare. And it's good that we from time to time are reminded that there is spiritual warfare going on, raging all around us. We we don't see it. But the Bible is very clear that it's going on. So watch this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I want you all to turn there because you've got to see something. Even if you're familiar with the armor, watch. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's pretty clear. Therefore, he says, take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Paul draws right out of Isaiah 59, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, he says. 
in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, also from Isaiah 59, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert for all, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So Paul goes through, he describes this full armor of God. And I know many of you are familiar with this armor. Here's what I want you to note. Who does the armor belong to? It's God's. It's God's armor. It's a simple thing, but check it out. This is not my armor. <laughs> this is God's armor. How do you know, Rick? Well, because Isaiah says he put it on first. It belongs to Him. Paul says it's the full armor of God. He wears it. He uses it. But check it out. He loans it to us that we might fight these battles. And unlike Saul's armor not fitting David, God's armor fits us perfectly when we come to Him in faith. And we can fight with the, with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. These things that belong to God that He Himself wears, we get to wear on loan from Him. I point out that it's God's armor because we have to recognize when dealing with spiritual warfare that the spiritual warfare, the battle, the ultimate purpose of it is never the glory of man. It is always and only the glory of God. Because if we're wearing God's armor and we're covered in His armor, what should people see when they look at us? That guy looks like God. What he's doing is glorifying to God. That we should, in spiritual warfare, literally drop into the backdrop and be unseen. And only the power of God Himself, the power of Jesus Christ, His Spirit, fighting. And we're just tools wearing the armor. It's His glory that we fight for. His glory. And we are soldiers of His glory. Think of it that way. We are warriors of His praise. That's why we fight the spiritual battle. And we get into trouble, and many have gotten into trouble when they begin to fight spiritual warfare, when they begin to go on the offensive, but they do so kind of excited about their part. Kind of excited about their ability to cast out demons, or to do spiritual things, or to fight in the battle. You know what I did today? It was awesome. I cast a demon out of someone. No, you didn't. You were wearing God's armor, speaking God's words. It was the power of Jesus Christ that did it. You just happened to be there. <laughs> you know, you're no more responsible for the, the victory in spiritual warfare than the guy sitting on the 50-yard line watching the touchdowns take place. You didn't do that. You know, I've shared about this before. We watch our sports team and we jump up and down. Yeah, we won. No, you didn't. They won. You watched. <laughs> and that's the whole idea. When we engage in spiritual warfare, God blesses us with being able to be involved in the process, but it's to His glory. And it is His victory. And so He gets all the praise and all the glory because we're wearing His armor. So we notice how He's dressed. Go back to Isaiah 59. Notice where the Lord comes from. Notice where he comes from in this time of tribulation. Verse 19 says, They will fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun, for He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A rushing stream sounds like a voice of many waters. He comes from the rising of the sun which is the east. Matthew 24.27 says, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Clearly, the one dressed 
is Jesus. The one coming to fight is Jesus. He was in Nazareth and went into the temple uh, or the, the synagogue there in Nazareth on Shabbat and he stood up to read. It was customary as a Jewish man, if you went into the synagogue on Shabbat and you wanted to read, you wanted to be part of the service, you just stood up. And when they stood up, they recognized you. They handed him the scroll, which happened to be Isaiah. Happened to be Isaiah 61, which they were in that day, on the day that Jesus chose to stand up. And Jesus opened it up, and he began to read. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, Jesus read. And Luke chapter 4, verse 20 tells us, He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. (laughs) And all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And He began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Of course, the rest of the story is they freaked out. But you Bible students know something very interesting about what Jesus did as he inaugurated, as he launched his public ministry. He stopped mid-verse. Isaiah 61, verse 2, does not end with proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. He stopped mid-sentence because that was the purpose of His first coming, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the age of grace. Grace is upon you. The kingdom is coming. Repent and be saved. That was the purpose of His first coming. His second coming continues with the rest of the verse. Isaiah 61 verse 2 goes on, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And Jesus didn't read it because that's not why He came the first time. But it is why He's coming the second time. Tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns, He comes to bring vengeance on a Christ-rejecting world. And we're going to talk about that more on Sunday. So we notice how He's dressed, armored up. We notice where He comes from, coming from the East, coming with a vengeance. And notice finally what He does. Look at verse 16. When He saw there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede, Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He's coming, not only with a vengeance for those who reject him, but with a salvation. For who? For Israel. We've already been saved. At this point, at the time of Jesus' second coming, when he returns, we come with him because we were saved seven years earlier. We were raptured. We were called home. We come back with Him. And He comes to save Israel. So why the tribulation at all? Well, if you've gone through the Revelation study, you know we've talked about this. The tribulation of the world is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah calls it Jacob's trouble. Why? Because it's going to be troubling for Jacob. Because in that tribulation period, when it all begins to unravel and fall apart, when Antichrist reveals who he is, And even before that, the Jewish people are going to begin in large number, not all, but in large number, to see Jesus really is Messiah. And the more they see Jesus as the Messiah, guess what happens? As Isaiah said earlier, he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. And the more they follow after Jesus, the more Israel itself becomes abhorrent to the devil. And they make themselves a prey of the enemy who will fully go after them to try and destroy 
So the Lord rouses the Jew in the tribulation, and He pours out His wrath in the tribulation, and the Jewish people themselves become a prey. So Jesus comes to save Israel. Matthew 24, Jesus says, for the sake of the elect, those days are short. And the elect of those days is Israel. And so Jesus comes to save. Now check this out, because this is remarkable to me. This chapter-long indictment of their sin, the separation, the corruption, the perversion, the confusion, the rebellion, leading all the way up to tribulation, leaves us in an absolutely shocking and surprising place an end that we absolutely would not expect with all of that baggage, suddenly we come to, number seven in your notes, redemption. Wow! See, when I look at that much baggage, I see damnation. When I look at that kind of a track record, I see history, toast, bye bye all done. And God brings redemption. Chapter 59, verse 20, A Redeemer will come to Zion... And to those who turn from transgression transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. With who? With Israel. Says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, both now and forever. Now you tell me, is He a God of grace or what? To look at Israel and to, to call out all of this sin as Isaiah is sounding the trumpet of God's warning, of God's alarm, and to turn around and say, and I'm coming to redeem you. All you have to do is turn to me and away from this filth. Turn to me. I'm coming to bring your redemption. Paul quotes Isaiah in Romans 11.26 saying, All Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint, Paul writes, of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Marvelous. We should not have ended there, but that's what God does. He brings us right to the place of grace. Take a a lesson from Israel. If the road is ruined behind you, if your life is messy and ugly behind you, guess what? God can deal with all of that. All you have to do is turn from it to Him redeemed. It's gone. All of that sin, transgression, all the stuff that we talked about, iniquity, gone. History. By the salvation of His own arm. And His own arm is Jesus. Back in verse 16. That is Jesus. Now, suddenly, as if coming out of a long night of darkness and despair, as we land at verse 1 of chapter 60, it is the dawning of the millennial kingdom. Check this out. Arise! Shine for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, Israel, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Three times in three verses He uses the same word. Rise, risen, and rising. And it's all the same word in Hebrew. It's the word zarak. And the word zarak is used to describe the rising of the sun. Sunrise. The light just spreading across the land. And it's a beautiful picture that Isaiah uses here. And the promise, by the way, cannot be to anyone other than the people of Israel. 
And the, God, and the Lord brings them out of darkness, rising like the morning sun. Verse 4, He says, Lift up your eyes round and you will see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Homecoming. Isaiah's talked about this before. A marvelous homecoming as all of the refugees and the dispersed of Israel come flooding back into the land. And then you will see and be radiant. Verse 5. And your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, which sounds uncomfortable, but it's actually a good thing. The young camels of, note this, of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you and they will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. My glorious house is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, built and standing and beautiful and glorious. Over these few verses, we see modern day peoples listed here. Midian is Saudi Arabia. In fact, Midian and Ephah That's the Arabian Peninsula and Saudi Arabia today. Sheba is Yemen. Kedar and Nebaot are Arabic tribes. Genesis 25.13 tells us these two were sons of Ishmael. So we have Arabic tribes, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, all flooding in, coming to the Jewish people. All these Arabic tribes that right now are still so anti-Israel flood in, but they want to be with the Jewish people. It's marvelous. And notice the gifts they bring in verse 6 are gold and frankincense and no myrrh. No myrrh. Why not? Because myrrh is a burial spice and the death happened 2,000 years ago. It's unnecessary. It never has to happen again. There's no need for the myrrh. Just bring the gold and the frankincense. We can use that. Verse 8. We, uh, who, who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish. Tarshish? That's the far end of the Mediterranean Sea. The far western side of the Mediterranean Sea. And some even believe it goes so far as to be Europe and Great Britain. Tarshish will come first, their ships, to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Kadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Foreigners will build up your walls. Their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will continually be open. They will not be closed day or night. Why? No threat. Tell you what, when King Jesus is seated in the temple, on the throne, right there in the midst of Jerusalem, no one's going to attack. Keep the gates open. Don't even close them at night. We're cool. So that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you (laughs) will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon. Lebanon is modern day Lebanon, right. They will come to you. The juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify, watch this, the place of my sanctuary. That's the temple. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. 
And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And by the way, that is the last time he uses the name, the Holy One of Israel. Gadosh Israel, 25 times Isaiah uses it. And it's sprinkled throughout the book, not just in the first half of the book, but throughout the whole thing, right up to chapter 60, where he uses it for the last time, speaking of the Zion of the Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. In verse 13, he mentions, he says, my sanctuary. And again, that's the temple. But he says, the place of my feet. Because Jesus, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, will rule and reign from the temple. That's where his feet are going to be. That's why the latter temple is more glorious than the former temple. Because Jesus is there. Ezekiel verifies this. Ezekiel 43, verse 7. You might jot that in the margin right there by verse 13. Ezekiel says, He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And so Gadosh Israel will. Verse 15, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride a joy from generation to generation. And you will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Wow, that's a little weird. No, it's a graphic way of saying all their wealth, all their riches, all their goodness is yours. It is yours for the taking. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now watch this. Verse 17, he says, Instead of bronze... I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Notice this. He says, I will bring all of these building materials. I will bring all this peace. I will bring overseers of righteousness, which by the way I think is the church. I'm going to bring all of this. What's the point? All these things of Him bringing, this has always been prophetically the job of Messiah. A Jewish person would say, Messiah is going to come build the temple. In fact, Hasidic Jews today are very opposed to anyone trying to rebuild the temple because they believe Messiah will do it. He doesn't need us to do it. Don't try and rebuild the temple. They're very opposed to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Opposed to the idea of a Jewish temple going up at all. Because they believe the Hebrew Scriptures that say Messiah Himself will do it. And by the way, He will. Although it will be after the tribulation. There's going to be a temple built by man in the tribulation. One that Antichrist is going to occupy. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 makes that very clear. That temple will fall. Messiah will come and He will bring the materials and He will bring the peace and He will build the temple. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Netzer, Nazarene, he will branch out from where he is, he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor, and he will sit and rule on his throne. And thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices, the office of priest and the office of king. Verse 18. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates 
praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, which is why He he rises, He's risen, and He is rising at the beginning of the song. The Lord rises, the Lord is the sun, the Lord is the light. He says, you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, your moon no longer will wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. And John expands on this version, on this vision. He looks beyond the millennial kingdom to New Jerusalem and writes, Revelation 21-23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. God is the light. Because, as we said earlier, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So what do you need a lamp for if God is present? Verse 21, Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, Netzer, the branch, the work of my hands, note this, that I may be glorified. And that's the whole point. Same as the reason why we wear the armor. The whole plan of God working in and through Israel. The whole idea that though they are sin-sick, transgressors, iniquitous, sinners like us, God redeems. Why? So He might be glorified. He receives it all. It comes to a head, and we recognize from start to finish, from beginning to end, it is for the glory of God. Final question. How soon will all of this take place? Verse 22. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. God ends this beautiful vision of the coming kingdom, and He says, with absolute assurance, this is all going to take place. You can bank on it. This is not a loose vision. This is actual. This is truth. It is going to happen. When is it going to happen? according to God's divine design in the fullness of His time. He will bring it to pass. Father, may we have eyes that look to the kingdom. May we be reminded daily, Lord, that this is coming and that Your promise will come quickly. And we want You to come quickly, Lord, but we also pray, we intercede. Lord, Your Word told us tonight that You looked for intercessors and there were none. Father, call us out. May we be intercessors for the kingdom. May we be praying that there would be workers sent into the harvest. May we ourselves, in response to those prayers, go into the harvest. And may we keep our eyes set on what you're about to do. Living each day as though it were the last, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.